Work, wealth, wisdom. This is DC Entrepreneur. We're sharing stories, ideas, and lessons from startups and businesses in the pursuit of innovation. And we're helping build a community of problem solvers and thought leaders in the Washington area. Now, here's your host, George Mocharco. This is George Mocharco, host of DC Entrepreneur. Here today in the studio with Sarah Vandell. Sarah is the CEO of Plum Relish. Plum Relish is a lunch delivery service in the Washington, D.C. area. Thanks for dropping by today. Hey, thanks for having me. It's always fun. So, Sarah, let's talk about the background of Plum Relish, how you came to start up a business working in the food tech space, and the history of uh, you as an entrepreneur. Uh, It's a good story. Uh, I was at the advisory board, and I think how we ended up, or I ended up in the food tech space was simply because I wanted a better lunch. Um, And my role at the time at the firm, and I think the firm is well known for being very mission-driven, service-centric, we did a lot of catering for, actually, for our teams. Um, And so I wanted a better type of service, a better food, and I couldn't understand why, hey, I'm working all the time. How How can we get a better food option here? And why wasn't anyone else really focused on it? Um, So we looked around. We saw the different things that were happening uh, across the country. And I decided, you know what? I think I'm going to start a a food tech company. Um, No one really believed me uh, when I decided to do this. had a great year at the firm, and I loved my team and was doing really well. And I just had this bug in me, and I could not stop thinking about it for like two months um, and so we started with this idea of, okay, how do we start a company that can bring better food that's profitable? Mm-hmm. Um, for us, you know, for me, it was really important to have a revenue first type company and to understand the unit economics. So, uh, you know, our business is better food for the workday. We power better food um, and drive demand for lunchtime um, in a way that's profitable. And so, when we started this business, um, thinking about, okay, how can we drive these profits? We looked at, okay, let's look at the, the baseline economics for everything and the behaviors that we learned from the advisory board and how can we translate that to a business because we knew it well. So we started, we actually uh, had a few ideas when we first started and then uh, we did a Kickstarter. We're like, we think everyone wants Tiffins. Uh, they think that they're going to bring to their office and it'll be great. That was not going to work. Tiffins are, you know, so the Dabawala is in India. They carry lunch. So you have the wives who make their food in the morning, and then it gets to the husbands. These are like those stacked stainless steel yes, containers exactly. that are delivered. Yeah. Yes. So we're like, oh, everyone's health conscious, environmentally conscious. This is a great way to do it. We'll do a subscription service like this. And it, it was a total dud. Um, I'm glad we thought of it, though. It's been important to uh, our thinking. But so we started um, with this idea of let's do lunch for the workplace. And the first call actually we got was from a private school in D.C., um, which surprised us for teachers there to do a lunch program. And then the next day we got a call from the school that said, actually, you know, we're interested um, uh, in working with you guys. Mm-hmm. So that started it. So before we even served a lunch, we had <laughs> helped with this lunch program. Um, so we focused on that and for a few months started that up, and then we dove into the corporate side. And so we've been doing that ever since. I, I saw that uh, when I visited your website, it recently changed. And it looks like uh, Plum Relish is now looking to work with restaurants yes. as partners. Uh, can you talk to me about what's in store for Plum Relish 
version 2.0. <laughs> You're smiling because to me, it's something like I, I just live with every day. And it's not a big it's not a big change. I think it's a natural evolution. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're we're sticking to our original mission, which yeah. is better food for the workday. And so what does that mean? And how do we produce it? And how do we get it there? And when we first started Plum Relish, there were a few things that we thought that weren't being done well. And one of them was, hey, I just want fresh food that ingredients I can read that's not a sandwich, that's not a platter, that people are going to be delighted with, that's going to be on time, all of those things. And we had talked to a few different operators in the D.C. area, and they're all like, well, we have a we have a catering menu. Or, you know, it, it was just like, well, that no one wants that. Um, so we decided, you know what, we're going to open our own kitchen, <laughs> we're going to do our own brand, and we're going to just start, and we're going to figure out the menu – and the way people eat and the consumption behaviors of all types of eaters has been, is fascinating. Um, and so, you know, people want chef-driven food, but they also want gluten-free. They are vegan before six. They're following the caveman diet. And I think to please a group of 40 people in an office is nearly impossible. Um, but it's an important part of the day, and it's a real good opportunity to, if you can have some competitive advantage of being a better service for it, um, and a better partner, then that's what you do. So probably over the last 12 months, I think we have close to 200 uh, offices. And, you know, we feel really good about the product we're putting out and the feedback we've been getting. And there, we were getting a few questions after the meals, which were, one, do you have a restaurant? Mm-hmm. Um, and two, can I can I eat this myself? Can I just order it for myself? Uh, the answer is no and no. Um, so we started talking to restaurants to say, well, listen, it's interesting we have this ability where people have tried our food and they want to go back to like a physical retail location. Uh, those are what that's what restaurants are for, right? Mm-hmm. And so we started having conversations with a bunch of different restaurants um, in town. Just you know, people I go to for advice. They're great operators. They produce great products. Um, and just said, hey, there's a there's a few opportunities in the market. And where we settled was you know on one end of the spectrum right now. What you see in food is basically a lagging indicator behind uh, retail, like Macy's and all the retail companies. I think the lunchtime dining traffic in a dining room at restaurants is the lowest level it's been in 40 years. So last year, restaurants lost $3 billion from people who stopped going to them during lunchtime during the week. Why is that? Is that just due to co- corporate culture burning people out? Or I mean, what's, what's going on here? Uh, convenience. Lunch al desco. Mm-hmm. People, yeah. you know, people, there's no real thing as a lunch break anymore. And then yeah, I think you also have the fast casuals that have done an excellent job of just getting people in and out really quickly. And so that's a better choice for you as a worker than to go dine at a restaurant. Um, and I think that's so slowly eroded um, a lot of these restaurants who I think have struggled. And so then on the other side, though, you have corporate catering in the office that is expected to grow 6% each year for the next four years. And you're like, wait a minute, there's there's a huge opportunity here. I feel like when I say that, I'm like, everyone should be doing this. Um, but I think the, the food behaviors continue to change um, drastically. And on top of it, how people think about food, where they purchase it, how they want to receive it. You know, I saw some study that was interesting talking about uh, Postmates, so for third-party apps. People expect Postmates, like 6% of the time, expect the experience to be better than if they were in that restaurant. 
The experience of what? Just the delivery uh, the process? Delivery, the delivery of getting your Postmates meal to you. always your... get it wrong. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Without fail. I think we've, I've had one order that was correct. <laughs> Everything was is, is always wrong. And then we always get a credit that says, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll give you $5 for the next order. And then you're incentivized to go and pay for bad service. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a good point because the, the third-party apps, I think there's a huge market for it. But the problem is, you know, they own your customers as a restaurant. So, you know, just because you had a bad experience with a restaurant, they're actually attributing it to the restaurant, mm-hmm. not Postmates or these third-party apps. So they'll go back to those third-party apps, just not the restaurant. Now, you, you focus on these particular diets with Plum Relish, which are, you know, paleo, uh, gluten-free, vegan, vegetarian. Why do you think it's important to focus on that when you do catering with an office? And why is it so difficult for people in offices to order and please everybody? (laughs) (laughs) Those are two huge questions. Our food is delicious. And a lot of food that is paleo, vegan, gluten-free and has all those restrictions is delicious. And you would never know that. But for the people who care about it as a first priority, they're usually not given good food. It's usually like, hey, you're, you're a vegan, so take the salad, you know, or, you know, just hop in line earlier and grab some veggies. Like it's just, um, you know, I think if you build menus that accommodate a group better, it changes the dynamics for that group. And so, you know, I, I don't know why people are so uh, focused on what they want to eat, but I think at lunchtime particularly, like, I saw some study that was like one out of two millennials, I'm 35, so I qualify, um, think they're a foodie. So you have half of this population that is going around that it's a foodie, right? And so you have people who care about it. They take photos of everything. Um, They're very conscious of what's in it. You know, what's more important to them? Is it local? Is it sustainable? And so there's a lot of information, I think, for as a consumer to care about. And so people care about different things. So a lot of people who eat gluten-free, it's not because they have celiac disease. It's because it's a signal to them that this was made with fresh ingredients that I can pronounce. So, you know, we see somewhere between 20, 25% sometimes eating our vegan dishes. And it's not because they're vegan or they practice a vegan lifestyle. It's, it's, they want to eat healthier before five every day. And so that's why, you know, the same reason why people like meal kits They like the exotic ingredients that they know they would never cook with. But if a chef cooks with it and they're like, oh, that's amazing. I could never do that. This feels delightful. So you have all these relationships like we cook less as a society, but then we have this whole portion that wants to cook more because we were never taught how to cook. Right. So, you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, I talk about food, you know, Food 52. I'm a huge fan of uh, that company. And I think those founders and what they've done for home cooking um, and there are people who are just like, I just want to bake. Yeah, it, it's interesting because I, I think I've seen an explosion of food options that you have now. I mean, you can get groceries through Amazon. You've got Blue Apron. Yeah. You've got uh, HelloFresh. Um, Amazon, of course, bought Whole Foods, which is now in kind of like the, the whole uh, food game in a different level. It's Something's happening here. So can you talk to me about what the future of food tech looks like. I, I will say there's a reason why there's a lot of things in motion because it's been ignored for 50 years. Um, I think if food tech can be anything from the back end on ag tech that's measuring you know, your field production so you can get a readout of when that lettuce is going to be harvested and when the optimal time to grab it from the shelf. You know, I think we're going to get better with waste and sustainability. We're going to eat less meat. Um, you know, the future of food... I, 
I think we're going to be able to have vertical farms in our homes and cities. And um, people are going to, I think there will be more of an understanding of is local better than organic, right? So you, you're fed a lot of these things. But, you know, I think Whole Foods and Amazon is genius and uh, <laughs> how, you know, that was structured. But from a food tech perspective, um, I, I'm excited personally to be in this industry that I was never in before because I think it's the most fascinating thing. People care about what they eat. It's a, you know, they do. It's a social thing. It's a skill. It's it's a lot out there. And I think, you know, health is a huge issue um, and, and a factor in food. Um, it's also, a, you know, a very political issue that people don't factor in as much where, you know, the more money you make, the less percentage you pay on your food products. And guess what? You're buying better food products. Like, is that fair? You know, access to different types of food. So I think, you know, giving people more of a democratization of food will be a, a natural, I think, extension from what's happening with like conscious capitalists, right? John Mackey, Whole Foods, that's his whole thing. You know, people are like, oh, great. This is going to, you know, this is going to help food deserts um, because because Amazon wants to do that. I'm like, I don't think Amazon is doing this to help food deserts. I think it's going to help, you know, get better food to more people. Um, and that will help all of food. Just for our listeners out there, can you define what a food desert is? Yeah, I mean, food desert, it's, you don't have access to fresh food. I mean, from a perspective of you, I think you have to travel a certain amount of time, but you have no local grocery store. You're basically shopping at 7-Eleven um, and you're eating a lot of processed food and you have no access to things to really cook with. It's expensive um, and it's a it's a massive problem, um, you know, because if you're a food company, you're going to places where people are spending more money on food. Um, so, yeah, it's a it's a it's a tough problem. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting kind of nuanced tricky situation because at once you do have access to food maybe not healthy food but uh, in some sense the fact that there is like processed or fast food does help with food insecurity issues because people are able to afford to eat even if it's not healthy yeah so they're eating something yeah um but it's also tricky because it's not i mean the food they're eating might not be it might not contain the proper nutrients that they need for a, a healthy diet as well as to be able to function in society as a healthy individual. Yeah, I mean, we what we did these last 50 years in our country is get really good at producing very cheap, low-nutrient food. And so now we are coming back with, we need to build food that is reasonably priced, that is more nutrient-dense. So we are reverse engineering all of that. And I think to do that, you have to start from the ground up. You know, And you can attack it from different parts of the spectrum of where it is on the food tech chain. But that is ultimately what's going to change. So we are getting to your exact point. Like cheap calories have been around for a long time. And, and exactly, I think, to your point back about like our eaters of people wanting the vegan, the gluten-free, it's because they, they want to know what's in their food and they want nutrients, um, but they don't need it to be fuel. They, yeah. they just want to enjoy it. So let's talk about Plum Relish here. I just wanted to talk about your your board, right? So you, you've got a, a solely female board. I think one member is affiliated with America's Test Kitchen. Just talk to me about that. Well, so it's, it's a board of advisors, right? It's like my board of elders, the people I go to when I need the best advice. Um, and, you know, when you start a company, you would like to think, one, your your mission is what you're doing. And the second part of it for me is probably more personal is I, I want to build something great. And part of this journey and part of a lot of it is really hard and you want to celebrate it with people who care um, and who are helping you grow. And those people push you. And I think the decision 
um, I realized was this, you know, starting a company um, and being a founder, I think about it, and it's very, uh, it's all male driven. So you see everything that's, you know, happening in the news. So you have to make the extra effort to be more inclusive. And so I started going to, you know, successful friends or mentors. Um, you know, so Jackie is the CFO at America's Test Kitchen. Irene Chang Britt is on the board of Dunkin' Donuts. And um, Steph Smith has started her firm. She's at a Harvard Business School. Like very, and Amanda Ruisi is a huge public relations firm. And I've known them well, and they've always helped me. None of them, like for the most part, have worked with startups. And I'm like, these are the people that need to be doing that. And so, listen, I need to grow into this role. And guess what? You're going to help me do this so you can help other people. Um, I mean, it's funny because Jackie was actually, I've known her since I was three. Um, She is very successful in private equity. She is very successful in America's Test Kitchen. We actually uh, share our attorneys at Golston and Stores in Boston, um, who've been phenomenal with me. And uh, I said to her, I'm like, you need to get more involved with female-founded companies. Like, I'm going to push you to do that because we, we need help. Um, and it's one way to get out there. And I think it's also, you know, it's uncomfort- it was uncomfortable for me to say, hey, guys, do you want to be on my board? Like, do you want to be do you want to be part of this thing? And everyone's like, yeah, yeah, I've never done it. What does that mean? <laughs> um, but yeah. it means like, I can call you right. and you'll pick up and you will help me um, and you'll make a few introductions. And, you know, we'll you know, we'll go from there. So it started with the idea of it's nice to have a good support system that's more professional, too where people who know you to some in some capacity, um, both personally and professionally, can contribute to you and your business. And at this stage, for me, it's it's really about the, the support that you're getting. Like, gosh, you're thinking through that in the right way, but I would not use that assumption there. So you need people who, who can push you and, and you feel like you have a team. I mean, I think mm-hmm. to me, having a team is is, um, is is important in anything you do. And it was something I did because I felt like from an investment standpoint, um, I was not, I've not talked to a lot of female investors. There is no way that if I talked to every female investor in the country, we would never land with female investors. Um, there's just not enough of them. So by having the female board of advisors, I thought, I thought it was a way to fill a gap um, that I really wanted to push. So let's talk about the, the individual kind of issues that you face uh, being a woman entrepreneur, not necessarily just in DC, but in general. Like what, what kind of things do you think make it more challenging, in a sense, to be a female entrepreneur? You know, it's a good question and it's timely. Mm-hmm. I think we'll have these conversations for years. I think being an entrepreneur and a founder is hard for a lot for anyone, right? It's it's not something that is. It's a very different type of skill set or mentality, um, and I think that you know, starting from a a young age, uh, you know, I felt lucky. I was a competitive athlete, um, so I think there are things that you know. Uh, to genderize it, right? Men are programmed for deal making, networking, you know, women like teams more, all of those things. So um, I think when you start a company, I, I took it as, you know, in my corporate life, if I worked harder, I would get to where I wanted, not, oh, I, d- I didn't know I can just ask for that. Um, and so I think when you start a company, uh, you know, you tend to, you, you tend to think, hey, I'm just going to put my nose to the ground. I'm going to dig in and work hard and then it will come. And I think what you hear a lot of, and I think resonates, is that, you know, female entrepreneurs, um, particularly, uh, you know, it's not as merit-based as you would think, right? 
Um, and it's a two-sided marketplace, though, too, because you ha- you don't have a lot of female investors out there. And the ones that are are, like, exhausted <laughs> because they're constantly fielding calls. You know, there's people that they, they're forming VCs. They can't do it fast enough. And then we all, we're all part of that same pipeline of, like, of female founders. Um, there's a study yesterday that said, or recently, uh, that 3% of VC-backed companies have a female founder. Why? I, I mean, we're we're learning, we're figuring it out, but I, I just think it's interesting because um, you mentioned specifically female investors. Do you think that as a female entrepreneur, that it would work best for you to have a female invest investor or investor team, or could that investment team be anyone? I mean, you need the best investors, man, woman, whatever. Yeah. Um, I think it's always helpful to have investors. I mean, you you want to project. Listen, you want equality, right? Um, I would certainly love an opportunity to talk to more female investors. You know, I think in 20 years, it's going to be people like, I hope me, who will sit down and write checks um, and just no questions asked. How much do you need? (laughs) Here you go. Go after it. Um, Rather than, you know, where we are right now, where I think we're in this this strange phase where um, you have investors, you actually have programs around the country that are accelerators for angel investors, teaching women how to invest in early stage startups, because it's just not something you think to do. It's like, hey, you know, you do really well in the corporate life. You make some money, throw it in some equities. What does that mean to be an angel investor? Right. Sure. So it's part of the culture of of that. And so I think, you know, in general, um, we'll see more female investors as there are more exits, as people become more tolerant of risk. Um, but until then, you know, it's not going to change. Talk to me about your personal journey as an entrepreneur. Um, what that looks like and, you know, how you've evolved as a person. Oh, how long do you have? <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, you know, uh, listen, I I feel like my DNA has changed. Um, okay. It's really, it's funny. I, I never thought I would start something. Um, I always thought, like, if there was an opportunity that I became obsessed about, I would go after it, and I did. Um, I just never knew when it was going to come. Um, I, and if it didn't come, I, I didn't care. But, um, you know, it's it's interesting to start a company because you always think, you know, when I was at the advisory board or any of these other firms, like, oh, if I was the boss, I would do it this way. Um, and it's just it's just a different type of pressure. You know, I wake up at 5 a.m. with straight adrenaline being like, oh, my gosh, are we actually going to make payroll next month? <laughs> like, how's this going to work? Um, and so you have, you know, a lot of times you have you have to make trade-offs, right? You you have people are your biggest assets and you want to take care of them. But at the same time, you need to make a trade-off to say, hey, actually, I, I have to ignore you today to get this thing done that's going to fund this company for the rest of the year. Um, and so... You know, I think it. You know, it's uh, my outside life has changed because it's one and the same. You know, you're constantly consumed by it, and you know your time. Like to me, Saturdays are Mondays. Uh, Fridays, I kind of like go down for a few hours around like four to seven, really just relax. Um, and I think you, you know, your mindset changes. Yes. Um, and you look for other people in the community too that are basically around the same level as you, like people who are six months ahead of me and building their company or a year or two. And you, you know, I seek out a lot of advice that way because a lot of times, you know, when people speak publicly, it's very different than what they're saying privately and how hard it is. 
And people just love to dive down and be like, this was the worst time for my company. Let me tell you how bad it was. And I think we all have those stories, yeah. you know, and, and you have to hear them to be like, oh, God, it was really hard for you. I see. Yeah, I think there's definitely um, a need to com- communicate empathy when it comes to talking about startups, because I think anyone that has done this knows how really difficult it is to start up a business, whatever it is, even if it's a franchise model. Being a small business owner is not for the faint of heart. It's almost like if I knew now how hard it was, I don't know if I would have done it. You know, now that you you have this business and you're like, it's so hard to be a people manager on top of steering this ship and then, you know, pitching why you're going to be a massive company um, and how you're going to do that, though, in the next four months. Uh, can you tell people how they can get in contact with you and Plumrelish? Yes. Uh, contact me through LinkedIn or on uh, my email I'm Sarah, S-A-R-A-H, at plumrelish.com. Uh, feel free to send me an email. I'm always uh, available, and I may not get back to you within uh, 24 or 48 hours, but I'm always happy to talk to people who are interested in pursuing whatever their uh, their dreams are. Great. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to drop by the studio today. Thank you. So excited to be here. Subscribe to this podcast via iTunes and connect with us on our blog, If you have any tips or ideas for stories, please tweet at us or message us on Facebook. Please tune in to our next episode, and thanks for listening.